Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 64. We got through the first seven verses. We're looking at uh, Isaiah's cry to the Lord. Where we've seen a vision of a man, bloodstained warrior, coming up from Basra, capital of Edom. He's gone there to destroy the enemies of his people. Because God wants to obliterate everything that stands between you and the fulfillment of his purpose. And Isaiah has this vision of complete and absolute victory. And yet with such a vision he's perplexed because if that's true, then why is the church in the state that it is in? Why is there no seeming victory if the Lord has gone the battle for us and won the victory? Why the discrepancy between his glorious promise and the experience of the people of God? And he just can't seem to handle that, and he just goes into prayer. And he begins to intercede and seek God and like a solicitor, like a lawyer, just rehearses every argument why God needs to break in upon his people. So he really has poured out his soul. If you and I want to pray for revival, looking at Isaiah 63, looking at Isaiah 64 is really going to help us to learn how to pour out our hearts and our souls. He's passionate, he's perplexed, he's not afraid to bear his soul to God, and he's not afraid to uh, say some very pointed things to the Lord, and argues like a lawyer or solicitor, and said, God, you know, this is your reputation that's at stake here. If you don't come and move in power, then the world's not going to understand this discrepancy about what is preached and what the actual state of the church is. And don't you know, Lord, that your reputation is at stake here? I don't know if you ever learned to talk to God like that. But Isaiah is teaching us the true heart of an intercessor. And he stands in the gap as an intercessor. He is standing fully on the side of God, and at the same time, he's standing fully on the side of the people that he's praying for, and he identifies 100% with both sides, and he's in the middle. And that's what the Bible means when it says God's looking for someone to stand in the gap. Someone who fully represents the heart of God, and fully represents the people, and, and speaks to the people, and speaks to God. A true intercessor and we looked this morning at part of Isaiah chapter 64 as he throws out his heart to God so let's pick it up at verse number 8 of Isaiah chapter 64 and by this time as we worked our way through chapter 63 64 by this time uh, the fact is he's poured out his heart he's poured out his Lament to the Lord, and by the time you get to verse 8, we've come to the conclusion of his lament. 
The rehearsal of the facts are over. There's nothing more almost that God or that Isaiah can say. But the fact is this, as Isaiah sees it, it seems, and I use the word seems, that God has withdrawn himself from his people. And the result of God stepping back, it appears to Isaiah, is that God's people don't even have any remorse over their own sin that has led them into this problem. But like every true intercessor, Isaiah is not going to let that be the last word. It's a fact that the people are as they are, but in verse number 8, he's going to say, but there's another fact. It says, but now, after I've rehearsed all the facts to you, isn't that amazing? We tell God everything he doesn't know. <laughs> I've rehearsed all the facts to you as I see it. The fact is, Lord, you are our Father. The fact is, we are the clay and you are the potter. And the fact is that all of us are the work of your hand. And Isaiah is going to press a final thing upon the Lord as he intercedes. And that is the nation of Israel is a distinct creation of God. The church, no matter what state it might be in, is a creation of God. Their existence is an act of God who called them. Their existence is because God gave them a covenant. God led them into the promised land purely as an expression of his saving power. In that sense, Isaiah is saying, God, you're our father and you're responsible for the fact that we even exist. So he's reminding God that in spite of our condition, we belong to you. For better or for worse, we belong to you. He reminds God that he's the potter and we are the clay. And God has invested literally centuries, centuries of work, millennia perhaps, of work into this people. And after so much investment... So much caring, so much intervening in their affairs. I mean, they go into bondage in the book of Judges, and they offend God, and yet they cry out, and God's moved with pity because they cry. And He saves them, not because they're repenting, but He saves them because He's compassionate. And time and time and time after that, and over the decades and over the centuries that God has invested so much in this piece of clay, molding and shaping, He's given so much of Himself into it. So Isaiah says to the Lord, Surely, you've lavished so much love and care and attention. You put yourself so much into this, you can't just throw us away, can you? We are your people. We can't deny that Israel has sinned, but God, neither can we deny your relationship with your people. Surely, you will not allow the people's sin to frustrate your creative purpose. So in verse 9, he continues this appeal, and he says to the Lord, Don't be furious with us. Don't be furious, O Lord. Don't remember our iniquity forever. Please look. We are your people. 
We are all your people. Yes, God, we deserve judgment. Yes, Lord, we have sinned. And so we don't ask that you would avoid judgment, and we don't ask that you would suspend judgment, but don't take it to its extremity. Because if you did, we'd be wiped off the face of the earth. Remember, we are your people. Remember that. It's a theme throughout the book of Isaiah that God's judgment. It will fall on sinful people. And Isaiah will make it plain that there comes a point that God has waited for so long and people don't respond to His mercy. There does come a point that judgment cannot be averted. But Isaiah, through the whole book, is going to teach us this. Judgment is never an end in itself. Even in judgment, the purpose is redemptive. The purpose is to cleanse and the purpose is to restore. And Isaiah is crying out to God to actualize that reality. Lord, we are your people. Remember us in the light of your never-ending love. Don't remember us according to our sinfulness. So he asked in verse 9, Lord, look at us. Behold us. That's the same prayer that Moses prayed when this people had committed the sin of the golden calf. It's the same prayer. You know, Moses said to the Lord, Hey, yeah, your people have done bad. But you know what, God? They are your people. And remember, God, you have made the choice to tie up your reputation with these people. So, Lord... Look at us. Look at us. Surely you cannot simply abandon, no matter how much it's deserved. Surely you cannot abandon your people. Do you ever get the idea as you hear Isaiah cry out as an intercessor that when you beseech God, it requires some sense of intensity? Have you picked that up at all in these chapters? Some intensity. You've got to put your whole heart and soul and feel it in the fibers of your being. If you want to move the heart of God, your own heart better be moved. If you want God to be passionate, our own heart needs to be passionate. And this seeking God, listen carefully, is hard work. We just kind of let it rather be easy, wouldn't we? We kind of rather that somehow the Spirit of God would just come on us and we really don't have to put ourselves out a whole lot. You know, listen, seeking God can be hard work. Intercession is not for lazy people. Amen. Let's understand that. It's not for lazy people. To press through and to seek God requires effort. It requires passion, and our own heart needs to be moved over these things. It's intense. It's more than just asking. It's more than requesting. It means we're doing business with God. It means we're entreating, we're imploring, we're begging, we're pleading. It's intensity of desire. Exactly how badly do you want to see God move? How badly do we really want to see God break through? Or are we content to let the years slip by? 
without a lot of change? Are we content to under our noses and before we know it, a whole generation and our children have slipped by? Are we content with that? Or are we going to do business with the Lord? To beseech God requires effort, it requires concentration. It requires humility of heart. It requires tenacity of purpose. It really does. And God's looking for people with that kind of a heart. You know, we say we want revival. Sometimes, maybe we're not aware that we seek revival a little too casually. Is that possible? That we seek revival and we claim it a little bit too rapidly? Listen to this statement because it is a true statement. Repentance is hard work. Repentance is painstaking work. Letting God look at the depths of our hearts is no easy process. Because as we're going to see in chapter 65, when God answers all this prayer, we just might see that God has a different thing in mind for revival than what you and I are asking for. When we ask God for revival, it's amazing the definition that God will put on the word revival compared to maybe our definition that we're asking for. Let me say it again. Repentance can be painstaking work. And just glossing over it will never bring an extraordinary work of God. We have to be attentive and we have to be particular in our pursuit of God. Isaiah is going to teach that. I want you to notice in these verses that we've been reading how many times the prophet says, We, we are your people. We are the clay in your hands. We are your inheritance. And Isaiah includes himself when he calls out to the Lord. We are all as an unclean thing. I mean, he's one at heart with the people. As he brings his final appeal to an end in verse 10, he says, God, look at the present circumstance. Holiness, where is it? He says, your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem is desolation. God, would you take note of the condition of your people? The fact is, there's no holiness at all. Listen to what he says. There's nothing about the land that would tell anybody in the world that we belong to you. It looks the same as any other nation in the world. He says, if we look in our past, There were times in our history where we could say, obviously God was there. But if you look now, 150, 160 years after the great revival that broke out in this place, is there any evidence that it ever happened? Is there any evidence that it ever happened? And Isaiah says, oh, we can look in our history and say, look at the move of God back there. But right now, there is no present evidence that anything of a mighty revival ever happened anywhere around here. There's no evidence of it. 
That's what Isaiah is saying. Verse number 11, he really takes it. He says it's bad enough that the land doesn't reflect you. It's bad enough that the city, Jerusalem, doesn't reflect you. But your temple, your temple, your holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praised you. I can just see Isaiah go back in his mind. Maybe he was going back to the time when Solomon built that temple. Maybe he was going back to the time where Solomon offered all of those thousands of offerings where God spoke and when God fell, when the fire fell and consumed the sacrifice. And he remembers the days of glory that happened there in that temple. And all he can look at that temple now and all he sees it, it's burned to the ground. Everything associated with the temple is lost. And God, if anything, should get your attention. It should be the temple is destroyed. God, this is where Israel praised your name. That's where the fire fell. How can you allow it to lie in ruins? What happened to your promise that you would make a Zion the reflection of your beauty? And, you know, he brings this lament to a close as an intercessor. And laments normally end with some sort of a form of praise. But this lament ends with no praise at all. Why? Well, the house of praise, the temple itself, lies in ruins. And so, in verse number 12, he's going to finish his plea, his lament, his intercession, with two questions. Will you restrain yourself? Because of these things, O Lord, will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? Listen, God, I prayed, I poured my heart out, I've lamented, I remembered the past, I tell you what I think, I'm telling you what I'm seeing, I'm telling you what I'm feeling, I poured out my heart, I bared it to you. Now, after I'd done all this, Lord, I've got two questions for you. Will you hold back your compassion? Because, God, that's your nature. You're merciful, you're good, and you're compassionate. It's your characteristic quality. That's the center of your heart. When I began this lament in chapter 63:7, he said, that's what I remember about God. This is long-suffering and this goodness. Now, God, I've laid it out before you. I've got a question for you. Are you going to withhold that compassion? Are you going to restrain yourself? Will you not express your mercy to us? And then he says, will you refuse to respond to my cry? And will you continue to inflict? What a man pouring his heart out to God. In all of these verses, 8, 9, 12, He's calling God by His personal name. Lord, we're in relationship with You. This is an intensely personal cry to God. Now, there's no question about Israel's guilt. There's no question about God's justice. If we're going to go by God's justice and Israel's guilt, there's no hope for Israel. No hope. The only hope is whether God will show mercy and pity for the condition of His people. 
The only hope that we have here is that God is concerned about the reputation of his own name as is linked with his people. Will that not prompt you to intervene, to do for the people what they can't do for themselves? Lord, that lone warrior, where is he? We need him to come. So Isaiah has boldly, he's passionately pressed God with questions like this. Where are you? Why are you withholding the blessing? Why are you holding back? Why do you make us err? Oh God, if you would just split the heavens, if you would come down, why do you keep silent? Well, have you and I learned to appeal to God with the same intensity? With the same arguments? Will we learn to pour out our souls over the condition of the church? Now, how is God going to answer this petition? For that, you've got to go to Isaiah chapter 65. And in chapter 65, after two chapters of Isaiah pouring his heart out to God, in chapter 65, God finally speaks and he gives his answer. Anybody interested to hear how God answers such prayer? Anybody? Are you sure you want to hear what God has to say? Because it's shocking. You're going to discover that God's answer is startling. You're going to discover that God's answer is actually very pointed. It's not what you expect. It's full of shock. And his answer is full of surprises. Chapter 65, verses 1 to 16, I believe it is, is going to teach you two things. The first thing we're going to learn is that God promises salvation for those who are his servants. The other thing you're going to hear in these God's answer is that he promises judgment on those who are not his servants, but who are actual rebellious against him. And are you ever going to be surprised who God considers a rebel? Do we really want to hear this? He's going to promise salvation for those who are his servants. And he announces judgment for those who are not his servants, but they're actually rebels. And are we ever going to be shocked who God considers a rebel? You sure you want to read this? This is his answer. Verses 1 to 7 of this chapter, he is going to denounce the false holiness of the people that he considers rebels. He's going to denounce their false holiness, the people that he considers rebels. And in verses 8 to 16, he is going to contrast the destiny of those rebels against the destiny of those who are his true servants. Listen carefully to what Isaiah is going to hear from the Lord. Because 
Isaiah asked many questions. And you know what? God in his answer is going to go straight to the heart of the matter. God in his answer is going to skip all the surface issues. He's directly going to go to the heart of the matter. And he's going to address some of the false assumptions that were made in the intercession to God. For instance, he's going to say, what do you mean, where am I? What do you mean, why have I caused you to sin? What do you mean, I've been hidden from you? Those are all completely false assumptions. His point is rather abrupt. God's speech is very pointed. The style of Isaiah 65 is very different than the prayer style of chapter 63 and 64. God's answer comes in short sentences. God's comes answers in agitated manner. And it's almost the way it's laid out is God is a... How do you say this? Because he's not like this, but how do you say it from a human point of view? It's like God is agitated at the way his people have prayed. He insists. You brought this thing up to me in prayer. He insists that the issue is not my silence. He insists that the issue is not my unwillingness to save. He will bluntly tell his people in his answer that I am not responsible for your choice of sinning. It's not my fault that you have made the choices that you have made. You're saying, God, where are you? I want you to know the Lord will say in this chapter, I am not distant. I am not remote, but I have been constantly saying, stretching out my hand, saying, look at me. Here I am. Here I am. I'm not far away. Why do you think I'm far away? The problem is this, God would say. I hate your hypocrisy. Listen to what he's going to say. As I set this up for you, so you understand the spirit in which God is going to give his answer. Contrary to the claims of the people who have been praying to me, contrary to the claims of those who appear penitent, contrary to the claims of the people who have been loyal to their culture, not all of the people of Israel, not all the people of Judah are God's people. Listen carefully. God's going to make this statement. Righteousness is not a matter of where you were born. Righteousness is not a matter of what ethnic group you come from. Righteousness is not a matter of what church you happen to grow up in. Righteousness is not a matter of birthright. Righteousness is not a matter of heritage. God's holiness is not received through you keeping the rituals, 
It is not received through you observing days of fastings. It is not received through loyalty to a form of tradition or religion you may have grown up in. It has nothing to do with God's holiness or God's righteousness. But those who grow up in social culture, believing they are the people of God, according to what we're going to hear, is these people who grow up in such a culture end up trying to manipulate God. That's his word on the issue. Is you use your culture to manipulate me, and you want to make yourself holy on your own terms. God's answer is going to disabuse any such notion in no uncertain terms. Superficial, cult-like performance of supposed righteousness, because you grew up in such a church, grew up in such a culture, according to what we're going to read here, God's view of that is it is nothing but smoke in my nostrils. It is something that disgusts me. It's tough stuff. It's searching stuff. Because not everybody who grows up in church are God's people. Not everybody who grew up in the traditions of the church are God's people. Because righteousness is not a matter of that. Righteousness is a matter of whether you met God and whether you let Him renovate your heart and whether you've learned mercy or not. That's what God is after. Now, it's in Isaiah 65. But I want to demonstrate to you that it's all through the book of Isaiah. Go to chapter 1 of the prophet Isaiah. But Isaiah, chapter 1, after in the first nine verses, discusses, it's almost like the Lord has taken Israel to court. It says, here you're falling short. He said, the whole nation is sick from head to foot. Now, we're talking to people here. This is talking to people who grew up in church. This is talking to people, ever since they were born, only know biblical instruction. This is talking to people who've never missed a day of church in their lives. This is talking to people who've known the commandments, who have known what was required of them, who grew up in it. But here's the point. They have trusted the culture instead of encountered God. Did you catch that? They've trusted the culture they grew up in and have never encountered God. That's the issue. When you start in verse number 10 of chapter 1, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And then he says this, What is the purpose of the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Why do you keep bringing me burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts? Why do you do this? And they're going to say, Well, because your word says we're supposed to. 
Because you instructed Moses about all of these things. So we're just doing what we were taught to do and trained to do. We're just doing it. And the verse 11, he says, But I don't like it. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or he goats. He says, When you come to appear before me, who's required this of your hands to tread my courts? Why do you bring this to me? Moses said so. He said, Then you completely misunderstand Moses. You think that's what I'm all about. You think this outer conformity to the image of what it means to be my people is what it's all about. I don't care about that kind of stuff. You misunderstand the law. You misunderstand the purpose of the Levitical sacrifices. And you've made the mistake because you grew up in it thinking your righteousness was involved in those kinds of things. It's not involved in that kind of stuff. So he says in verse 13, don't bring me anymore. I hate it. It's incense. It's an abomination to me. Every time you have a new moon and a Sabbath, all these solemn assemblies, I can't stomach it. Away with it. It's iniquity. Even when you have the solemn meeting, your new moons, your appointed feast, my soul hates. They're a trouble to me. I'm weary to bear them. When you spread your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. When you make many prayers, I won't hear. You missed the point. It says you do all that outer stuff. But there's a problem here. There's a problem here. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you. Make yourself clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Stop doing evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. That's my heart. I'm a God of compassion. I'm a God of mercy. And my children are people of compassion and people of mercy. Just because you grew up in a church your whole life and you don't know any different doesn't make you a child of mine. Not all of Israel is really Israel. Are we catching the seriousness of what God is saying here? So he says, come now and let us reason together. Let's talk this over. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. You think that's a promise? That's a threat. I know evangelicals like to take that verse, you know, red as sins of scarlet will make them white as snow. I hope you understand it's not cleansing that's being talked about, it's leprosy. Leprosy starts out red, and when it gets really bad, it turns white. It will progress to kill you, is what it's saying there. I thought I'd throw that in just to mess up our great sermons on though red as scarlet will be white as snow. What he's saying is leprosy progresses to kill you. That's the context of that verse. But he says, if you be willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, wait a second, who are the rebellious? They're the law keepers. Who are the rebellious? The ones who bring the offerings and the burnt offerings and the sin offerings and the trespass offerings. Who is the rebellious? Those who never miss church. Who are the rebellious? Those who keep the feast and those who keep the new moons. It's amazing who God calls the rebels. 
Why? Because they're trusting in their tradition rather than encountering God. And God considers them the rebels. Go to chapter 58. Chapter 58 is all about fasting. And they observe fasting days. And they're going through the observance and going through all the fasting days that they're supposed to observe. 58, it says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Show my people their transgression, the house of Jacob, their sins. And they're going, what? What sins? It says, yet they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness. They don't forsake the ordinances of God. They're keeping all the traditions, keeping all the laws, keeping all what they were taught ever since they were children to do. They ask of me ordinances of justice. They even take delight in approaching to me. And God says, oh, excuse me. You think that qualifies you to be my child? You think that makes you holy? You end up trusting your tradition, and then you turn that tradition around to manipulate me as if I got a jump when you say jump. Why? Because you grew up in a tradition and were faithful to it all your life. It's hard reading this stuff. So, verse 3, why have we fasted? And God, you take no notice of it. God, why are we afflicting our souls and you take no knowledge of it? And God says, I'll tell you why. Because your heart, you outwardly you are keeping to the traditions, but your heart has completely missed me. You don't know me. And then you expect to use your faithfulness to your tradition as leverage with me. It's not going to work. God says, I consider that rebellion. He says, if you really want to get my attention, it's not through cult-like obedience to the traditions that you have inherited. If you want to get my heart, well, look at verse 6. Why don't you loose the bands of wickedness? Why don't you undo heavy burdens? Why don't you let the oppressed go free? Why don't you break every yoke? Why don't you give your bread to the hungry? Why don't you bring the poor that are cast out to your house? When you see the naked, why don't you cover him? Then you'll get my attention. Because I'm not all about you keeping all the traditions and the laws. I'm all about mercy. I'm all about justice. I'm all about compassion. I'm all about kindness. If you want my attention, that's how you get it. Trusting in the form of religion that you grew up in means nothing to God. Do we dare read chapter 66, the last chapter? Chapter 66, verses 1 to 4. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you would build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? <laughs> You're going to build me a house? Really? He says, tell you what, everything you build that house out of, I made it. And all those things my hand has made, but I tell you, 
You want my attention, the last part of verse 2, is not in big fancy buildings, not in traditions, not in culture, not in any of these things. You want to get my attention, verse number 6, this is the man that I will look to, even to him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit, the one that trembles at my word. Now that gets my attention, the Lord says. Now, look at God's point of view in verse 6. For people who are keeping all the traditions that they grew up with, he says, tell you what it looks like to me. You bring that ox for a burnt offering. From my point of view, God says, you might as well kill a man. Oh, you brought that lamb to sacrifice? From my point of view, you might as well broken the neck of a dog. He that offers his offering, as far as I'm concerned, since your trust is in your tradition, uh, you might as well offer swine's blood. For those who burn incense, you might as well offer an idol. Why? Because you have chosen your own ways. And their soul delights in their abominations. Now listen, when it says you've chosen your own ways, what Isaiah is saying about is you're choosing to put your trust in your tradition that you grew up in. That's choosing your own ways. Instead of pressing in to know me, you simply fall back and trust in the Christian tradition in which you've been raised. So when Isaiah says, my thoughts are not your thoughts... My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your ways. And my, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. What do you think he's referring to when he says your thoughts and your ways? It was their trust in their upbringing, trust in their traditions that God's talking about. Now, as we're going to hear on Isaiah 65, that God says... These acts of self-righteousness. If you think righteousness comes because you're faithful to the traditions without ever encountering my heart, it says, I can't tell the difference between you and a pagan. From God's point of view, trust in tradition, listen to this, is paganism. To trust in your tradition in the eyes of the Lord is paganism. Am I overstating it? I mean, they're sincere. When you choose to put your trust in that stuff, God considers it rebellion and paganism. How many would prefer God not to answer? But he answered, that's what he says. Just because God was the father of the nation as Isaiah pointed out just because God gave his law to Israel on Mount Sinai does not mean we're going to hear this in chapter 65 it does not mean that those who call himself his children really are total foreigners outside of ethnic Israel according to Isaiah can be true to the covenant of the Lord and they could be more the servants of God than those who were born Israelites. Now, go to chapter 65. I'll just look at a few verses. And we're going to see how God responds here. 
A lot of times we like to avoid these kinds of passages and we just pretend we don't understand what it's talking about so we don't read them. Anybody ever do that with your Bible? I'm always talking about, so let's find another, another passage somewhere else there. Aren't you glad for people who like to dig into these hard parts for you? Isaiah 65, listen to God's answer. It's blunt, it's to the point, and it almost comes across with a hint of impatience. As beautiful as the prayer of Isaiah 63 and 64 was, there are many things with false assumptions in those prayers. Look what God says in chapter 65 in response. I am sought of them that have not asked for me. I am found of them that did not seek me. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not even called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a, what kind of people? A rebellious people which walk in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. Now wait a second, walk in a way, what way? They are obeying every jot and tittle of sacrifices and Sabbaths. And they're not walking too far on the Sabbath day. And they're bringing the right kind of sacrifice without blemish. And they're not doing hard work on the Sabbath day. And they're keeping all the rules and they're keeping all the regulations to a T. They're dotting their I's and they're crossing their T's. And God says, the people who have chosen their own way. You have trust your ethnicity. You've trusted your culture. You've trusted your upbringing. Instead of encountering my heart. You have established a whole lifestyle and a whole culture of Bible obeying and you've missed me. Wow! Israel's problem is not that God is distantly remote. The problem is not His implacable silence in the face of their penitent cries. According to what we just read in verse 1 and 2, the truth is this. Listen to this. That God was answering even before anybody ever began asking. God was answering before anybody even began looking. The truth of the book of Isaiah is this. That God will reveal himself. He will give himself to anybody that follows his initiative. The problem is we trust our culture. We trust our upbringing. We trust our years of attending church have never missed. And we think that gives us power with God. It doesn't. It doesn't. God was listening before anybody was even calling. Where are you, God? God says, I have been calling your attention long before you started praying. He says, here I am, here I am, verse number one, behold me, behold me, here I am, look at me. And if people didn't call on my name, the Lord says, it's not because I hid myself. The fact is, I've been stretching out my hands all day long to people who are rebellious. Rebellious, they're the best Bible obeyers you can find in the world. And God says, 
rebellious because you're trusting your upbringing instead of knowing my heart. Ooh. You walk in a way that's not good according to their own thoughts. So far from hiding himself, God says, I'm not hidden. I have been actively all day long offering myself to my people. I have stretched out my hands to you. But you're trusting in your tradition instead of my heart. I stretched out my hands. I'm begging you to return to me. You, in your prayer, want me to turn back to you. I don't need to turn back to you. My arms are stretched out to you. I need you to leave your rebellion. I need you to leave your trust in your traditions. And I need you to learn my heart. That's what the issue is. But they have to relinquish this. Now that word rebellion, don't you think it's a little tough for God to use that word? To such people? Don't you think God's being a little overboard with that word? Let me tell you what the word means to you and I. If I was to put it in modern English today, maybe if I used the word stubborn. In other words, you want to do things your way. You want me to conform to your culture and you don't want to find my heart. You want me to conform to your Bible culture and your Christian tradition. That's what you want me to do. I want you to find my heart. God's saying from time immortal, from the beginning of time, I've always been ready to help. But for just as long, my people have been stubborn. I say one thing, they say another. You would rather make your own plans and follow your own heart and follow your own scheme. The problem is that God says, I'm not unresponsive. The problem is you want me on your own terms. It's not going to work. The problem is this, that you have gone about because you have inherited a tradition, a culture that's supposedly Christian, that without you knowing it, you have gone about and you are establishing your own righteousness based upon your culture, based upon your traditions. That your sense of righteousness is based on ethnicity. It's based on bloodline. It's based on your past history. It's based on you belonging to a certain church. It's based on you belonging to a certain tradition. It's based upon you trying to identify with a history of a certain denomination. And the thing is, you put your trust in all of that, God says, and the fact is, you have missed knowing my heart. You have made the false assumption that because you have done those things, that you are my people. You're not my people until you encounter my heart and until you let me write mercy and compassion in your heart. Then you're my people. And that's what God is after. I think that's a little kind of tough. But that's the word of God. This is God's answer. This is what Isaiah 65 is all about. But you think it's just Isaiah? No. All your Old Testament prophets will say the same thing over and over and over and over. Every Old Testament prophet is going to rebuke the people for trusting in their traditions 
rather than encountering the heart of God. Every Old Testament prophet does it. Listen to Samuel. 1 Samuel 15, you'll recognize these verses, verses 22 and 23. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Then he goes on and he uses the word rebellion. Rebel, who's he calling rebels? Those who are bringing the sacrifices and the fat of rams. Samuel says, rebels, because you're trusting in that, rather having or allowing God to renovate your heart. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Listen to Hosea, chapter 6 and verse 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Listen to the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. What shall, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression and the fruit of body for my sin? Is that what God wants? The answer is no. Then he goes on to say what God wants. He's shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, King David understood all of these things well. So well that he understood it that he moved the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle of Moses. And he pitched a tent on a hill called Mount Zion. And you have a place in your Old Testament called the Tabernacle of David, where in the Tabernacle of David, and thoroughly in all the book of Psalms, you have a revelation of what God really wants and what God really desires. I love the study of the Tabernacle of David. These thoughts that we've just shared with you from the prophets, especially Isaiah, when you get to your New Testament, man, just listen to John the Baptist take on the Pharisees and the religious people. You are trusting your adherence to sacrifices and to your interpretation of the law. Don't you, don't you remember hearing John the Baptist saying to them, don't say we have Abraham as our father. Don't claim holiness and righteousness because of your ancestry and your ethnicity. Don't say we have Abraham to our father. I'm telling you, God can raise up sons of Abraham out of these stones. You should listen to Jesus tackle the religious people of his day. Call them fools and blind guides. Let me just bring this to close in just a few minutes by reading some passages out of Isaiah that bear on this. This will help us understand God's answer in Isaiah 65. Isaiah 55, verses 6 to 11. They're familiar verses. When I read them, you'll recognize them. 
It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. And saying, come seek me. It's time. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Who do you think he's got in mind when he says the wicked? And who do you think he's got in mind when he says the unrighteous? Are we thinking evil sinners out there? The drunks and the drug addicts? Is that who we're thinking? Who's God got in mind when he says this? You know who he's got in mind? The people who are trusting in their religious upbringing. He says, let him return to the Lord. And he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. To what is God referring when he says that? My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. He's referring to their trust in their culture and in their tradition. And God says, no, I don't think like that. This is not right. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain comes down, the snow from heaven, do not return there. They water the earth, make it bring forth in bud, might give seed to the sower, bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing which I sent it. Listen to what he says in chapter 30 and verse 18. Read it this morning. But he says, therefore the Lord will wait, that he may be gracious to you. And therefore he will be exalted, that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those that wait for him. Let me put that to you in a little more modern English. What God is saying is I simply have to wait until I find people who will accept my terms I have to wait till people accept my ways. I have to wait till people accept my thoughts so I can deliver them. God is asking the question, why do people want me to conform to their inherited religious culture rather than being transformed by revelation of my heart? Why do you want me to conform to your culture, the Lord says. I want you to be transformed by a revelation of my heart. What is it that God wants? He wants mercy, not sacrifice. He wants compassion, not judgment. He wants contrition, not religious pride. He wants conformity to his character, not a show of religion. One more verse, chapter 57 and verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity whose name is holy I dwell in the high and holy place and with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit so I can revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite ones. Do we want revival? Do we understand what God is after? Because when we want God to come, 
He will not conform to our culture. He will not conform to our way of doing things. He will not conform to our religious ideas of what church is supposed to be like. God will not conform. If we want God to break through, then what's going to happen? There's going to be a renovation of our hearts. What revival is going to bring, a true revival, requires, listen to this, according to Isaiah, it requires a turning away from paganism. Well, I'm not a pagan. It requires a turning away from trust in tradition. It requires turning away from our culture. And that's hard work. It requires knowing the heart of God and being made over in God's image. When we talk about revival, that's what God's got in mind. So we want God to come. I hope we understand God comes. He's not going to do things our way. But He's going to demand that we submit it all to Him and relearn everything and let our whole life flow from the foundation of mercy and compassion and justice. And no matter what that ends up looking like, That's what God wants. And that's what He's after. And that's that's what He's desirous of. Do we understand how serious God is about this kind of stuff? And do you understand how serious it is to maybe have been brought up in a culture that we think is righteous and godly, but God's point of view is actually paganism? Do we understand more than anything? We need to encounter the love of God and be remade in the image of God's love. These verses give us God's answer to the prayer of chapter 63 and chapter 64.